This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. This episode is sponsored by Do Grief Differently, my 12-week in-person or online program that helps grievers who have suffered any type of loss to feel better. In Do Grief Differently, you learn new tools, education, and a method you can utilize the rest of your life. In this program, and with my guidance, you remove the pain of grief. The sadness will always be there because even in complicated relationships, we love but it's the pain of grief that keeps us stuck. Are you ready to do grief differently? Check out my website, www.theunleashedheart.com, to learn more. Thank you for tuning in to Grieving Voices. Today, my guest is Melissa Riley. She is a clinical psychologist, parent coach, and mom without a mom. Although grief had been a part of Melissa's life from the age of four, she was shocked to find that a resurgence of grief would be a part of her birth experience. Through her personal and professional life, she has come to recognize that moms without a mom experience grief during the years postpartum and beyond, even if they don't recognize it. She's passionate about helping moms without a mom heal through grief, build community, feel joy in motherhood, and move from feelings of isolation, insecurity, and overwhelm to a place of confidence and resilience. Thank you so much for being here and for your time You're welcome. today. welcome. It is my pleasure. We're going to dig right in. And I'm interested always to talk to other child grievers like myself, because we have a lifelong relationship with grief that a lot of people don't experience or can't even understand or comprehend or wrap their head around. And so you're grief experience was even much younger than my own. Mine was around, my dad got sick around when I was six. And so, and then he passed away a couple within 18 months, but yours started when you were four. Yes. So let's start there. Sure. Sure. So I was born into a family. I was the middle child of three girls and both my uh, parents were living in together And when um, I was uh, two and a half, three years old, um, my older sister was diagnosed with leukemia. And so back in the 1970s, leukemia was um, almost always terminal. Um, I mean, it's still extremely dangerous and scary diagnosis now, but back then there was, there was very little reason for hope. So My parents did the best they can and provided as much treatment as they could for my older sister. We lived in a rural upstate New York uh, community. And so the best treatment uh, that was nearby was in New York City. So my parents would spend lots of time in New York City with my older sister, as was appropriate. And then my younger sister and I 
um, she was 18 months younger than I, um, you, you would be in the care of anybody that was able to care for us. <laughs> um, and then unfortunately, after, um, you know, a, a year and a half battle uh, with leukemia, my, my sister passed. And I was at the age of four when this occurred. And so um, my earliest memories include, you know, trips to New York City, being masked back when nobody was, and just the, you know, everything that came along with that, that long process. And then, of course, the, the grieving process. In, in fact, one of my earliest memories is, is a dream that I had after my sister passed. Blank, can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So as you can imagine, a four-year-old does not have a very strong understanding of what death means, right? So I was very used to my sister and my parents being gone for periods of time. And then they would come back and things would feel happy or good or safe, right? And so it was common for me to ask, you know, my first question is, when's Kim coming home? When's Kim coming home, right? And so my parents would always answer, well, you know, the day of her funeral, which um, my sister and I were not at, um, I remember, you know, the ride home in the car um, and just playing in the backseat with my sister and then asking, you know, the obligatory question, when's Kim coming home? And uh, there was silence and, and it was pretty um, obvious that that something was wrong. And so I don't remember who answered it. It was likely my mother who, who said that she died. And I remember not knowing what to feel, knowing I should feel something, right? But all I could think about was um, wanting to get home so I could keep playing. I was four, right? So that's a typical response. But so I didn't quite understand. And then I would keep asking my mother the question over and over. So when's Kim coming up? Oh, she died. How do you remember? You know, we, we talked about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know she's dead. But when is she coming home? <laughs> so really kind of struggled with that. So one night I had this, this dream. Um, and my sister, when she was ill, wore um, this nightgown that I, I remember, you know, it was white and had blue flowers. Anyway, so in this dream, she was in this nightgown and she came, came down. I was in my garage. She came down kind of from the sky and, um, you know, greeted me and we started to play. And she's like, um, I said, oh, good, good. You've come home. And she's like, no, no, no. I'm going to take you to where I live. So she took my hand and we floated up, you know, to my four-year-old version of heaven, which was puffy clouds and little sheep. And, and again, we played for a little while. And, and then she said, okay, it's time for you to go home. And um, I was like, okay. So she brought me back down. I'm like, great, you're staying. And she, she said, no, you live here. I live there, but it's okay. We'll see each other again someday, but not now. You stay, I have to go. And um, it was extremely profound because at that point, I stopped asking the questions. You know, and, and I know that to be true because I've since looked in, in you know, my baby book that was barely written in, except the few passages that talked about it, Melissa's having a hard time. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, oh, Melissa seems to be better. She stopped asking. So... So it's just always there, but you know, I, you know, that dream, I always found uh, comforting that idea that that she was okay. And she was up in the puffy clouds with the sheep, (laughs) my version of heaven. 
How old was your sister then when she passed away? She had just turned seven. And unfortunately, in in fact, the day before we're recording right now, yesterday was her birthday. So she would have been 50, uh, 52. What do you think when you look back in hindsight now as a professional doing the work that you do and knowing about grief that you do, what do you think could have been, how do you think it could have been handled differently for you and your younger sister? Um, Well, that was a great, great question because a a number of things. Um, One, my parents, they did the best they could, but my mom was so determined, right. To make sure that my sister's death was not going to impact me and my younger sister's life. So they just plowed forward as if nothing happened. And, and again, it was with the best of intentions, right? We had just all suffered and she didn't want us to suffer anymore. So um, a couple days after, you know, a couple days after my, my um, sister died, my younger sister turned three and my mother had a birthday party for her in our house. Right. So she's like just buried her oldest daughter. And now she's having all these, you know, little toddlers around for birthday. I mean, she did everything she could. And then, you know, I started kindergarten at the age of four cause she wasn't going to let anything stop me. Right. So, it, but, it, but clearly, you know, I wasn't ready. And then, you know, again, with the best of intentions, it was so painful, but we never talked about, about it, Victoria. Our family just one day she was here and one day she wasn't. And life went on as if nothing happened. And we literally never talked about it. We never talked about my older sister and we never talked about the experience of her dying. And so what happened, and I didn't realize this at the time um, until it was much later, that what that did is that created the sense that death was something that was so terrible. You could not even talk about it or it would destroy you. And, and I didn't realize that until I was in my, my young twenties, I was blessed. All four of my grandparents lived until my adulthood and, and um, me and my younger sister were talking at the time in which my, my first grandfather was having major medical problems and it was becoming clear that he was at the end of his life. And so we were talking and both of us were expressing our fear of him dying. And, and she had made this, this comment, I don't think I'll survive it. That's a pretty startling response, right? So, the, so a man in his 70s who's lived a full life, having a natural death, right? I don't think I will survive it. I don't know how I will get through this. And so thankfully, I was in therapy at the time, right? And um, I mentioned that um, to, to my psychologist and she was stunned. She was like, wow, that, that's, that's not a usual response to a normal death. And I was like, really? Well, why not? it's that horrible. How are we going to be okay? And it was at that point that we were able to discover that that unintentional thing that my parents did by never talking about it, right? To to let us have a happy, normal childhood. What it did is it created this undeniable terror of death, right? Which thankfully, you know, worked through, you know, that's not an issue anymore. In fact, I'm very comfortable with death, but you know, this, this idea that, you know, children don't remember or children don't grieve in the same way is, is so 
I mean, that's true. Children do not grieve in the same way, but the, the profound nature of childhood grief is still present and evident. We just don't have the language and the prefrontal cortex to process it in the same way as adults do. So. Oh, so much to unpack there. <laughs> I had a similar experience. Like it just wasn't talked about. Mm-hmm. I take that back. Um, and this isn't to vilify parents, right? No. This, you know, because I, I, I've had guests where they just want to be clear, like they did what they could, they yep. did what they knew, right? And that's what I talk about all the time is we resort to what we know. Yes. And if we didn't receive this education of how to address grief and how to process it and all of these things that I talk about on a regular basis, we resort to what we know and we don't know mm-hmm. what we don't know. Right. And it does create a lasting impact in a negative way. It just does when we don't take ownership of learning this stuff. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, a lot of my experience in a lot of ways too, but a little different, of course, because my situation was different. But yeah, not talking about it, children will create their own stories. Yes. You know, what I talk about a lot too is how grief we kind of grow up with grief as yes. child, child grievers and it changes with us and we take us everywhere we go. And so it's always there. How did that change for you? I'm especially curious into your teenage years. Well, I, um, you know, understandably so became quite depressed at the age of 13. I mean, it was clearly genetic in my, in, in my family history anyway, and growing up with grieving parents, you know, has an impact, but I remember, you know, becoming a teenager and just becoming utterly, you know, depressed and feeling this intense sense of something missing and, and just something wrong with me and, and just never, never enough. And, you know, you know, again, my parents did the best they could. Right. But, but they were impacted by their own grief experience. And so part of then what I learned to do was try and be the, the best that I could be right to, to, to make them happy without ever knowing I was doing that. That just became part of who, you know, I was and am, you know, I mean, I don't know that I'd be the person I am today if it wasn't for the experiences that occurred early on, but in adolescence, always needing to be what others wanted me to be, you know, which can become quite problematic as you can imagine, always trying to make people happy, and just internalizing all those feelings of bad, not being good, never good enough, and just miserable and not really feeling like there was any place for me to talk about those things. Again, I, I think my mother would be horrified to hear that that's how I felt, but, but that, that is how I felt, right? And, and hiding her process from me to the best ability that she could only meant there wasn't an openness about it which meant I never felt that permission to be open about it. And, you know, it was an unusual experience. Nobody, I I went to a small little school, nobody that I knew had siblings that had died. I wasn't really exposed to other child grievers. In fact, interesting story. So my sister would have graduated high school two years above me. And when her senior year would have been, one of the people that gratefully took took us in 
uh, during that time was aware, right, that I had an older sister, in fact, the same grade as her oldest daughter was. Um, so that's one of the, the ways that you know we were connected because my sister did go to uh, kindergarten uh, periodically and a little bit of first grade when she wasn't in the hospital or she, when she wasn't you know in danger. So there was a little bit of awareness there. Um, but anyway, so th- so she said, "Oh, your sister would graduate. We should include her picture, you know, in the senior picture section." So you know, we we got this uh, picture, which was you know again that that quintessential picture that's always in your head, right? The, the one that's always given. And for her, it was right before her, her final relapse. And so it was like when she looked her best at her oldest picture. So that was put in the yearbook and it was, it was beautiful. It was a, a full page tribute, right? Of this little seven-year-old, barely seven-year-old um, little girl and her name. And I, I remember when the yearbooks came out, I had a whole bunch of people come up to me and ask, who is this little girl? She has your name. Like nobody knew I had a sister. Like, oh, well, that was my older sister. So I had to keep, you know, retelling the story. And what struck me, Victoria, was how people kept referring to it. That little girl is your older sister is, is the phrase little girl, because I didn't see a little girl. And I didn't realize I never saw a little girl. I only ever saw an older sister. And I didn't realize that actually until just a number of years ago about how significant that was because I could never see my sister through my, my current lens. I always saw her from that lens of, of the preschooler, the, the tiny person, like always just constantly just back through that set of eyes, which means, means I was always kind of going back to that place of early life experience without, without knowing it. I mean, and, and for most of my life, when I looked at the picture, I, I was startled by how I never saw this, this little girl ever. I do now, thankfully, you know, because I'm in a, a much different place, but it just really struck me as odd. <sighs> There's so much in that because when you don't have anyone to relate to you, you do feel like you're all alone. And Mm -hmm. I relate to much of what you shared. Small school, same thing. Like I didn't know anybody that lost a parent and adults didn't know what to do or say. And because we all, we just, we aren't taught this stuff, you know, how did this experience and, you know, grief is, it's never just one thing, right? It's Mm -hmm. always, it's cumulative and it's cumulatively negative. And I have not yet met a single griever who has not had multiple grieving experiences, even though, like you said, in your um, information that you had submitted to me, you just don't even realize it. Mm -mm. And so what have been some other experiences that have informed your life today and the work you do? Well, um, like I said, I was, I was blessed to have all four of my grandparents until adulthood. And then, you know, I, I started to lose you know, I lost my first grandfather and, and that was a, an end of life death after a fulfilled life, you know, with us having a good relationship. So with regards to grief experiences, it was, it was natural and normal. You know, there was nothing complicated about it other than the sadness of the loss. So I, I was very thankful to have that experience because it was in, in many ways, a, a healing corrective experience for me to know what it was like to grieve as an adult 
when everything you know was was healthy and appropriate. And then unfortunately, not long after that, I had a series of losses. So my mother passed away um, at the age of 25. Uh, I was 25. She was 51. Um, wow. Yeah. So very, very young, died from a heart attack suddenly. My little sister, bless her heart, died uh, seven months after my mom passed away. So those two losses were were very significant and, and very difficult. And a complicating factor for my mom's dying was the fact that we had a falling out eight months prior to her death. And that falling out never was completely healed. So so we were pretty much estranged for those last eight months. So that made that difficult. And then, you know, my younger sister had mental illness and she was just really struggled was in and out of psychiatric hospitals, probably four to five months out of those seven months, you know, not in a row, but in and out, in and out, in and out. And then in supportive housing after my mom passed, unfortunately, I was the one that told my sister, you know, about our mother's death. Uh, My dad had called me uh, when my mom died. And, um, you know, so I went, you know, we lived in different places. I lived in uh, Pennsylvania. I was living here actually in Pennsylvania at the time. They were in New York. So I went right up. And then my sister was living in Connecticut. So as soon as I got there, you know, we drove to where my sister was living and she was living in a supported housing community. And so we told the staff members what was going on and to make sure she was there and to have a staff member present. And my dad just couldn't do it. <laughs> just couldn't do it. So I did. I needed to tell her. And your dad is still living. Yes, he is. He is. God bless him. He, uh, he is. So, you know, and then, you know, when my sister died seven months later, she was in, she was in the hospital when it happened. Pulmonary embolism, go figure. But um, he had the doctor call me because he couldn't do it. So I get a call in the middle of the night a psychiatrist in a mental hospital telling me my sister had died. So again, you know, drove up to my dad and then, uh, yeah. So then he was just, you know, beside himself and, you know, he's like, I'll never forget his his comment. It was like, I can't put everybody through this again. We're we're not going to have any funeral or anything. And I said, no, that's not acceptable. You know, you're not putting anybody through anything. She died. And uh, so we had funeral and and did all that, but I needed, you know, to arrange it and make it all happen. And and again, I'm I'm not angry at my my dad. I mean, he, you know, this was the second child he had buried, and it was only seven months after he had buried his wife. So, so it's amazing that he is still alive. You know, in a lot of yeah. ways, because yeah. grief it takes a toll. It's exhausting mm-hmm. and. Is there a part of you that maybe isn't even surprised in a way about your mom's sudden death and even your sister's like sudden no, death? No, no, not at all. I mean, it was just a lot. You know, my sister's best friend when she was in seven, you know, died in a house fire. You know, and both my parents were there because they were part of the community ambulance and fire squad. I mean, so just so, so much death. And then, you know, my dad remarried and his second wife died after 15 years. So he buried her and now he's married to, to another woman, but, but yeah, it's just, yeah. Yeah. So she, she died after my son was born. My, 
but my son doesn't really have a memory of her because he was too young. And that's just it, right? Like these experiences never leave us because then you become a mother and then Mm -hmm. all of these insecurities come up and all of these moments that you don't have your sisters and you don't have your mom and you don't have these shared experiences. This is where people, I think, kind of I I mean, I fell into the trap of thinking, gosh, I guess I'm just here to suffer my entire life because it was just loss, trauma, Mm -hmm. loss, trauma. Mm -hmm. And you can get easily in that downward spiral. And I kind of want to circle back a moment to where when your sister, older sister did pass because and why I asked how it kind of showed up for you as a teenager, because what I've come to realize lately is there's always there's like two camps of kids child grievers it's those that act out anger slipping grades go down a different path and then there's the other that don't want to rock the boat don't know boundaries are people pleasers Mm -hmm. try to be the best at everything they do you know that's two kinds of kids that are child grievers and what's interesting to me and what is what society does and really what is damaging to children is that in my opinion is that we look at these children like you and I who wanted to be the best we could at everything we did and had this underlying perfectionism about us and didn't want to rock the boat and you know everything i just said and then the children that other children then are deemed as problem children and neither really receive the support that they need Mm-mm. neither no but the children that choose a different path this is where i'm not surprised that we are a society of addiction right absolutely my sister struggled with addiction terribly and you know it was a way that she coped with you know, the mental illnesses that she experienced and just you know i mean she encountered death she was barely old enough to talk, right? You know, I mean, her whole life was, was filled with it. You know, and it was just terrible. Now you are a licensed, right? You're a licensed, yeah, what, licensed what is psychologist. Your, okay. So in your professional opinion now, mm-hmm. was it grief that your younger sister, oh, or did she have like a diagnosed? Um, yeah, my grief, grief was part of, of both of our lives. Right. And you know, kind of fueled the development of personality. She also definitely experienced, she had bipolar one and, and there okay. were times when, when, when there would be, you know, a, a psychotic process to it as well. Now, would she have had that, had our life been filled with grief from the beginning? I don't know. I think both of our lives would have been extremely different, right? But you know, both of us throughout childhood, we experienced our emotions through physical problems, right? I had migraines that were so bad at the you know, age of 13, I was taking angina medicine. I was the only child I knew that would go to sleepovers with her heating pad because I would get leg pain so bad. Just all these weird physical things that weren't physical. I mean, they were, I mean, they were true mm-hmm. physical symptoms, right? But they were caused by emotional distress. So, you know, the brain 
as you know, forms over you know 25 years. Our brain isn't done growing until we're 25 years old. And so when it is flooded continuously by the stress chemicals and constantly in this place of hypervigilance, our whole physiology is impacted and our whole sense of self is impacted and our whole ability to regulate emotions is impacted. And so your know, mental illness and grief become intertwined in, in many ways. And, and so I, I don't think they could have been teased apart for her or, or myself or, you know, my aunt, my, um, you know, my mom was an only child. My father had one sibling who was 15 years, his junior. So she was closer in age to us. She's more like a sister to me. And yet she was kind of this lost child also because, you know, nobody talked about it in my family. Certainly, you know, for her, it was like nothing ever happened. And so in more recent years, thankfully her and I actually been able to talk about what it was like living, you know, our childhoods and and the ramifications of that one experience or sequence of experiences and how it impacted us, you know, forever. Well, and that's just it, right? You can have one event, but the ripples of it mm-hmm. is everlasting. Yes. And so as a mom now, you have one child? Well, I have, I have two sons. Um, my oldest came into my life when he was three years old, when I married his father. And then I birthed our younger son and, and he's the only child that I gave birth to. And so what, I know you spoke a lot, you spoke of that in your information you submitted. Mm-hmm. And so how has that, you know, and that shapes a lot of the work that you do and the people you work yep. with. So can we talk about that? Absolutely. So, you know, it had been 15 years since I had my, the, you know, my mom had, had died. I, you know, was married now and unfortunately had three miscarriages prior to the pregnancy with my son. So just kept experiencing grief after grief after grief, right? Um, and I was just blown away. I was like, you know, and I knew a miscarriage was was common, Right. One in uh, five pregnancies end in miscarriage. So it is pretty common. But by the time you have three, that's pretty rare. And so at this point, I was like, oh my goodness, what is going on? And we were in the process of finding that out when I became unexpectedly and unintentionally pregnant again and was terrified. And um, really, as that pregnancy progressed, I knew I was extremely high risk. These feelings of longing again that I hadn't had for a while, this longing for someone who was missing resurfaced and was just overwhelming and continuous. So now it was all of these people I felt like I was missing as well as the fear of losing another. And I was having these distorted thoughts that I wanted a girl, but having a girl was frightening to me because all of the girls in my life died. So the the men seemed to be okay, but females, not so good. (laughs) So I went into labor with my son at 26 weeks. And so the remainder of my pregnancy was either in the hospital or in bed and back and forth, getting shots and doing all kinds of things to um, sustain that pregnancy, which thankfully, despite only being given uh, 10% odds of maintaining the pregnancy, I carried him until exactly 37 weeks. Wow. Gave birth and... And, um, you know, he was healthy. Well, we, we discovered that he's got some neurological issues based on some of the shots that were given, which 
had to be given, but you know, in general, he's doing amazingly well. But it was at that point during the pregnancy and then giving birth that I realized just how alone I was and how unprepared I felt and how isolated and insecure and what an imposter. And this was coming from someone who was just days shy of her 38th birthday, who owns clinical practice, who taught child development at the graduate level. So I had all these resources behind me. I was very confident in who I was as, as a woman, as you know, a professional. And I was so blown away with insecurity and isolation and overwhelm and not knowing what I was doing by this little infant. And I felt like I didn't have anybody to ask because I felt such an intense feeling of shame over not knowing what to do. And nobody understood, you know, I was, I was getting all these platitudes. Oh, moms feel that way. Sure. Yeah. All moms. Yeah. That's normal. That's normal. That's normal. Well, it isn't, it isn't normal to be a mom without your mother and to be going through all of this. And that's why I'm doing this because I know now my son is now 11 and I still look back on those first few years and it still pains me by, by just what a difficult time it was for me. And, and it saddens me that, that my son's first few years of life involved all of that. And it saddens me for, for me too, right? It was just such an intensely difficult and troubling time. And nobody was talking about it. Nobody is talking about it. Nobody talks about it. So, so that's why past couple of years, I, I made the decision, you know, in my clinical practice, I was starting to see more moms without a mom. And, and it became something that I began talking about with them about how different the experience is and, and how real that, that sense of isolation and lack of community impacts us and how draining it is and how grief for a mom, you know, either a mom that's died or, or a mom that you don't have a relationship with. And, and I can get into that in a few minutes, how that is real, even if you're not recognizing that as a grief process. And so after working with a number of moms within, you know, my clinical practice, you know, I realized there was this, this real gap that I thought I was well positioned to fill. And so that's why I began you know, my, my coaching program um, specifically designed for moms that are mom. This way I can reach a broader audience, right? And so not just those that are coming into my clinical practice because of mental health um, issues, but, but those that, that, you know, are from a place of, of health and just needing some specific assistance related to mothering as a, as a, a mom without a mom. What are three things, or I, I don't know why three came to my mind. <laughs> Maybe I think I know that you have three things to share, but yeah. <laughs> so three things came to my mind. What three things, tips, suggestions, things that you've learned I don't know, three somethings <laughs> about your experience, your own experience and what you try to get across to those you work with in, in terms of moms without moms. Okay. So absolutely. I do have three things. So it was Ooh, perfect. That was good. <laughs> um, but first I, I want to define who a mom without a mom is. So you are a mom without a mom. If you are a mother who is separated from your own mother by death 
by emotional estrangement or physical distance. And the reason I include all three of those things is because there are um, three or three categories is because there are three things that all women in those categories seem to, to share. So one is that grief process I talked about. So um, you're either longing for your, for your own mom that, that can't be part of your life, or you're longing for the presence of a mom who is loving and supportive and can provide guidance. So those moms that are separated from their own mother by emotional estrangement, you know, if their mother may be alive, but they're not in their life because of either toxicity, emotional abuse. And so they still don't have the ability to connect, to go to. They have emotional you know, baggage themselves related to memories of their mom, right? And so it creates that, that difficult piece. And then those mothers that are separated from their mom by physical distance, they also experience this grief, this, this loss, this sense of not having what they thought they would have when they became a mom. And, and again, that's somebody there. So, so we experience grief, right? Second thing is there is difficulty with community. All right. So moms without a mom don't have the same go-to person that other moms have. And so I have some strategies for that as well, right? So moms without a mom need to build strategically their mom community. They can't just rely on a relationship they, they're comfortable with, um, that being their mother. And then the third thing is mom identity, right? So who am I as a mom? when I don't have my mom to mirror myself after. So there's lots of moms out there whose moms died when they were really young. And so they, they may not even have, you know, that role model figure, right. Or they had a mom and the relationship was, you know, not good. And so how do they, you know, figure out who they are that's like their mom, but not like their mom. And, and so all those factors get pulled into play, you know, so those, those are, are, are three common threads, grief, difficulty with community, and then struggling with mom identity. All right. So when it comes to grief specifically, one of the things that um, the three things that are really important, right, is first to be able to recognize that what you're feeling is grief. All right. So, you know, grief can show itself in many different emotions. So we've got sadness, hopelessness, anger, fear, right? We also can experience different ways of thinking, right? This longing, the, the questions of what would have been, those conversations that we never had or would like to have replaying over and over in our head. And then, of course, physical symptoms, right? The, the decreased energy, um, changes in appetite, sleeping too much or too little, right? So we have all those grief experiences that we may or may not label as grief. And I think many moms, particularly in postpartum, get identified as having postpartum depression, which they may or may not have, but the underlying contributing factor is, is, is a grief process. 
So first we have to recognize, right? Identify, oh, you know, I'm not necessarily thinking about my mom, but I'm just feeling really kind of alone and isolated and just yucky. All right, let me identify that. That's okay. Maybe that's part of grief so I can normalize it. And the second is to be able to express our culture, as you know, all too well, Victoria, is so uncomfortable with grief, right? And so people don't like when we express our stories, even the happy ones, right? They try and cheer us up or take us you know, down a different path, try and distract us, you know, get our mind off of it. Well, that's not really helpful. We need safe places to be able to express our stories, right? The good ones and the not so good ones. Then the third is to be able to fill in some of the gaps, right? And that kind of leads into that community piece I was talking about. So filling in the gaps means getting the support in ways that you're needing that that person that you've lost would have felt or filled, but in different ways. All good stuff. I can identify with uh, some of what you said there, (laughs) even with the postpartum. You know, I experienced that after my second, but even more so after my third child. And it was kind of a, a struggle of a pregnancy yeah, as well. But go see your doctor and right away, they want to give you a pill, you know, right? it's yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness. And, you know, don't get me started on that, that you don't medicate grief. <laughs> hey, let's go there. Ooh. Oh what have goodness. you seen in your practice or what have you, oh, all the time. What, can, what guidance can you give people listening before they take that step? Like, how do you, here's a good question. Yes. I think it's good. <laughs> how do you discern for yourself? Well, you know, I guess I just need to get on something. They're trying to mm-hmm. say that I should, you know, even just a small milligram, right? I don't know what else to do. I'm overwhelmed with all these feelings and emotions. Right. I'm just going to get on this thing. And that, that's, you know, they suggest this. Well, first and foremost, grief hurts. It is yeah. painful. It hurts to the core of your being and it is normal. I think that is so important to realize that grief is painful. Not all hurt creates wounds that you need to do something about. So for example, if I were to pinch you, it would hurt, but it would not create a wound. The hurt would diminish and you'd be fine. But if I were to pull off a piece of your skin, that would cause a wound that we then need to treat. We need to do something about. We in our culture, when we're exposed to pain, we become distressed and we fear that it's creating this wound, something that we need to do something about. And that just is not the case most of the time. Grief hurts. It is supposed to hurt. We have lost someone or something very dear to us, and it is going to hurt. However, you have the ability to be okay, even with the hurt, the pain, the hurt itself is not damaging. And the intensity of that pain is not lasting in that way forever. Grief lasts forever, right? I will grieve the entirety of my life. And I know that, but my grief experience now feels very different than my grief experience did at earlier times in my life. So the first and foremost thing is if you are experiencing pain and you are crying, if you are struggling to get out of bed, if you are distracted and you are in the early stages of grief, that is normal. It is really okay that most of your energy is going to simply functioning. I want to give you permission 
to just let all of your energy go to simply functioning. It's really okay. Now, it is not appropriate to medicate an uncomplicated grief process. Many physicians, medication is their primary tool, right? And they are physicians because they want to help people. And so they give the tool that they have. Unfortunately, they give it too quickly. I don't need a hammer to push in a tack into a piece of cork board. It's not appropriate. So when you make a decision for medication, that should occur after several other things have happened. You know, one, that you're talking and you're, you're getting support around your grief process. And that talking can be with friends, family. It can be with a you know, professional, so counselors, therapists, psychologists, a coach that specializes in grief healing. And after a period of time, so I'm talking several months, you are still not able to function in basic ways, right? So caring for yourself, caring for your loved ones, functioning within your place of occupation or or academics, you know, if you're in the academic realm, that's when you start to consider medication. But again, simply because you're not back to your normal self after, you know, three days, three weeks, three months, or a year, that isn't necessarily reason to then go on medication. Now, if you meet criteria for a diagnosable mental illness, then certainly medication could be part of your treatment process. But if that's the case, then I highly recommend you know, getting support through counseling and, and not just medication because medication alone is no more um, efficacious than counseling. In fact, in long-term research, medication alone is less efficacious than counseling because you don't learn anything simply by taking uh, medication. So. And that's why I think the biggest piece is, is you learn, you have to learn new knowledge in order to apply it and integrate it into your life. Yes. And there is a fabulous quote. I shared it on a different podcast episode, I think, but I got it in my inbox and I just, I just love it. And it talked about how, you know, knowledge isn't power. It's the application of knowledge that truly empowers us. Yes. And so, and that's what we talk a lot about in grief recovery. It's as a, you know, in the work that I do with specifically grief, it's multi-layered. And so I would even say, even if it's not within a year, give yourself some time. Oh gosh. It's layered and it's years, especially if you've right. never had therapy or never addressed anything, you've got probably decades right. of stuff to work through. Right. And one year is simply the acute phase, right? <laughs> because it's the year of firsts. Mm-hmm. which doesn't mean it gets easier or better necessarily, right? For, for me, many times year three was a bigger struggle. Um, and then, you know, depending on your own experiences, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when your child, especially if we, we start thinking about milestones with your own children as they age, right? So yeah. if your child turns, for me, you know, the year they turned seven, was was a trigger year, right? It was constantly hypervigilant about how they were doing and constantly thinking about, oh my God, I can't imagine their life being over. Oh my God, I can't imagine what 
this was like for my parents, right? So there was a real increase uh, of my own grief process, you know, coming, you know, at a time that, you know, had nothing to do with their milestones, right? It was just the age in which I had my first grief experience. So, so again, it gets, it gets triggered at, at many different times. And that's where too, I think childhood grief is very different than opposed to someone who may have first experienced grief as an adult is yes. it really is this lifelong relationship. Yeah. You know, and I, I think one of the the blessings that I recognize now is that I'm very comfortable with death. Mm-hmm. I was going to go there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't fear it. Right. I don't like it, but I don't fear it. I, which provides me with a sense of comfort and a sense of resilience. And so I feel very comfortable going to those places of, of fear and grief and, and with the people I work with, right? And, and I can hear their stories and, and I can just sit with it, knowing not only that I am okay, but they are okay too, even though they're feeling so badly in the moment and that the best gift I can give them is to honor the space that they're in, not to change how they feel, but to simply honor it and and give it the space it deserves. That probably never was given for a lot of grievers. Right. Right. Is that one of the things that grief has taught you? Mm -hmm. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Is there anything else that you feel, I mean, you shared a lot woven into your personal story and in the work that you're doing and, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. That's a really probably an untapped area of grief. I haven't seen it before, I guess. Is there anything else you would like to share? Well, you know, I think one of the biggest things, uh, takeaways Today, I I want listeners who are moms without a mom to know is that you are not alone and that what you're feeling is real and significant. And so I encourage you to reach out, to talk about it, to let people know that you need support when you need it, you know, to build up a sense of mom community. But most of all, right, to know that you are okay. You're doing the best that you can. And, and your mothering may look different than other people's mothering. And that's okay because you're doing it on your own. And I applaud you. So do you have a community? Um, I, I do. Um, I, I have my, my personal community and, and then I have, um, you know, my professional community. So my personal community, I, I include four people, right? So wise woman, this is the woman that can answer your questions and, you know, has lots of information and that could be a professional, right? Um, your emotional support. So this is the person that will listen anytime that you just need to express your emotion. They don't try to cheer you up and they don't give you advice. They just listen. Like a personal shaman. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. The fourth is the go-getter. So this is the one that can get things done. 
So you need laundry done, she'll do it, right? Um, so the, the, and we all have friends like this that are always busy and always doing something and we're thinking, oh my God, I can't keep up, right? So the one that you can ask to help at any time. And then the fourth is the late night talker. So this is somebody that you can call upon basically any time. So those are the four people I recommend all moms, but especially moms without a mom to have in their corner. And, um, you know, I have those in my life. And then, you know, professionally, you know, I'm building a community of moms without a mom. And so I would invite your listeners, if you're interested to reach out, you know, we, you know, I'm offering free call, you know, we can connect, I can hear about your particular situation, right? I encourage people on social media there, or I'm on Instagram. So, you know, I talk a lot about moms without a mom. In fact, that's my, my name on Instagram. Moms without a mom, you know, and so to become part, you know, of, you know, community of of people that get it. So people that work with you then get into a, like you have an online community. Um, I will will be creating an online community. I, I haven't formed that yet, but that's, I'm in the works. So hopefully I'm hoping by this summer that I'll, I'll have a, um, a group You'll probably start with a Facebook group, but I will be uh, developing a, a larger uh, coaching program. Um, but right now I'm doing just individual coaching okay. and I'm part of that community. So, And where can people find you your, for your website? My website is momswithoutamom.com. So Perfect. very easy. And it's moms with an S. So momswithoutamom.com. Nice. And I'll put the link to your social and website and things in the show notes. And awesome. Um, I love those four kinds of moms to have in your corner. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful tip just for anybody. Yes. Really? Yes. And know the strengths of your friends, right? Cause none of us are all four of those. Right. So if, if you know, you know, the person that's a, the go-getter, she may not be the person that's great at just listening. And vice versa. I mean, I'm a great listener. And, I, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm kind of a wise woman as well. I am not the go-getter. <laughs> my laundry stays in my own machine for about a week. So, <laughs> but, you know, so we all have our strengths. So, so, you know, don't expect one person to do it all. And that's the thing, you know, like my, for my podcast cover art, it's me on an island with a megaphone. And I didn't have that sense of community you know, when I, I was a new mom, I mean, I had some family here, but you know, it's the girlfriends, you know, it's, I think that's so important um, as a mom. It it took me a long time to develop that and curate that for myself. Yes. Yes. It is difficult. And I was an older mother. So, you know, my friends all had teenagers and young adults. Oh, sure. I mean, that's another grief, right? Like, yeah. Being out of sync. (laughs) Absolutely. So, but yeah, it's all good. Thank you so much for everything that you shared today. And it's unfortunate that we have to go through some really difficult and challenging times to be in a space of healing, helping others heal, but I wouldn't change anything. And I don't suspect you would either. No, no, I wouldn't. Not at all. Uh, Again, you know, I am the person I am today because of all that I've experienced and learned and, and then what I've done with it. So 
but there can be guilt and shame in that too. It's like, and you know, this is where I want, I had a fleeting thought when you were talking earlier about, you know, the emotions that grief brings, you know, you were talking Mm -hmm. about sadness and anger and all these things, but there's also joy. Yes. And then we feel guilty for feeling joy. Absolutely. Because, you know, I talk about having containers and we can hold multiple containers, right? And so you can grieve for the loss, you know, of a mom, you know, and the longing for that and have the joy of being a mom and love your child, right? You can experience all of that. And so you don't need to feel guilty that this may be, you know, front and center right now. That doesn't mean this isn't there. Mm-hmm. just not front and center and it's okay. Yeah. So yes. Moment to moment. Absolutely. For a lot of people. And that's absolutely, and that is normal and that's natural. You're not crazy. No, not at all. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here today. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it very much. And remember when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.